We're reading today from the first gospel, Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the reading from the song that you have just heard. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matthan, and Matthan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Whew. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, that was exhausting. I don't know how it was for you, but it was exhausting for me. I have a hunch, it's just a hunch, that you have never heard this particular text read in public worship. I would even venture to say that you yourself have never ever read this passage even in your private personal devotions. I told a retired preacher friend of mine last week that I was gonna actually read Matthew 1 today, and he said to me, I will likely tune in to your service after the reading, and I understand. We tend to gloss over this kind of material, and frankly, personally, I think that the lineage of Jesus is probably a good prescription for insomnia. What benefit, what possible value could there be to perusing the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, why on earth would we read this reading? Why, why not just skip the begets and begetting to the meat of the story, the heart of the gospel? And yet Matthew says, 
not so fast. Of the four Gospels, it is Matthew and Luke who seem to think that this material is critical. In fact, if you read Luke 3, which is Luke's version of the lineage of Jesus, he goes all the way back to Adam, while Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. That was common in Jewish biographies in that day to begin with one's family tree. The heritage of the Hebrew people was important, not just for ethnic reasons, but for spiritual reasons. I mean, think about it. If you believe that your tribe is favored of God, is chosen of God, then it's pretty important to remember your roots. I think it's become more important even now in the 21st century with the emergence of organizations like Ancestry.com. A simple blood test today can give you hints, clues about your own stock. And I, for one, believe that it's important to know where you come from and from whom. Some of you know one of our members, his name is David Albright. I believe he's in the Wesley Forum class, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, David recently discovered a connection between the Albright family and the Chapel family. Uh, He discovered that apparently we are distant cousins. And I share this with you all as a prayer concern for David, actually. David discovered that we are related. And he began to do some research, some digging. He is kind of a historian by nature. And he actually made a chart of the Chapel family that went back 14 generations to Cambridge, England, to the birth of one John Chapel, born in 1487. It was an unbelievable surprise. And some of what he found, I really didn't want to know. For example, he discovered that Captain Thomas Chapel, a captain of a ship, set out with the Mayflower on his ship, which was called the Speedwell. I have a replica of Captain Chapel's boat, the Speedwell, which was to bring us along with the other boats to the new land. But Captain Chapel, because of a leaky boat and because of what some say he was a bit fond of the drink, he didn't make it over. He had to turn back. He is not the first chapel to miss the boat. But a few years later, he tried again and he made it and he settled our tribe in Virginia. Now, David also found the spiritual patriarch in our family. In 1788, William Chapel Jr. was born in Halifax County, Virginia. He became a convert to Christ, a devout disciple of Jesus as a young adult. He was called in those days a shouting Methodist, which is essentially a Wesleyan who has discovered the Holy Spirit. He later relocated to Murray County, Tennessee, Columbia, and he had a grandson named Ashley who started out as a school principal but was called to preach along with his brother Clovis, and Ashley was my grandfather. Born in Flatwoods, Tennessee in 1879, and to our family, these names are kind of important Because in the lineage, in the names, we find not only our familial heritage, but we find our spiritual roots. 
So maybe, just, just maybe, there is some benefit in a list of names. Every name has a face. Every name has a soul. Every soul has a story. And in fact, the introduction to the New Testament, the title verse contains two names. Matthew 1 verse 1 begins, this is an account of the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I don't have to introduce these two guys to you. You know them well. David the greatest king of Israel. In fact, the designation son of David would become a messianic title for the long-awaited one. Abraham, of course, Abraham and Sarah, father, mother of our faith, with whom God made covenant. And God said to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and through you all nations will be blessed. And some of the names that that Andrew and the girls sang about and that I read, some of them you know, some of them are familiar, some of them you've never heard of. But to Matthew, every name is essential. Every name in the family tree is a part of an unfolding drama of God's redemptive purpose. Now, a couple of things I want you to note right off the bat. First of all, notice that Matthew mentions 42 generations. The names are organized into three sections of 14. And by the way, the number 14 is important because it is a derivative of the number seven. If you read the scripture, you know that the number seven has eternal significance. It is the heavenly number, we say. It's not lucky seven, it's blessed seven. We've heard the phrase, we've all heard the phrase, the seventh heaven. You remember the creation happened, occurred in seven days. You remember the Sabbath day is the seventh day. The number seven signifies order, organization, and providence. It's also ironic, I think, that the corresponding numbers of the Hebrew letters in the name David also equal 14. So it's true that even the numbers tell the story. The first set of 14 names go from Abraham to David, that is, from revelation to nationhood. The second set of 14 go from David to Jeconiah, which was the beginning of the exile, the darkest period in the history of the chosen. And finally, the third section of 14 stretched from Jeconiah to Jesus, from exile or from lost identity to fulfillment of identity. So in these three sections, 14 each, you see the three stages of Hebrew history. There's something else I want to mention in the text that I think warrants our attention. There's something in this genealogy that distinguishes it from other lineages of its day. There were four names in the list that frankly, when you read it, seem a little out of place. They are female names which is odd for a first century genealogy, which usually only includes men. And furthermore, 
it seems as though these women that are mentioned aren't even Jewish. In an ethnic group, in a race where bloodline is everything, when I see these names, I wonder if Matthew has made a mistake. And moreover, when you research these women, there is a hint of scandal in some of the names, and yet they are included in the family tree of the Messiah. I want to mention those four names. We begin, first of all, with grandmother Tamar. According to Genesis 38, she was the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah, who was one of the 12 sons of Israel. She married Judah's firstborn son, whose name was Er. Er died prematurely. And according to the Leveret law, this is Deuteronomy 25, the law commands that if a widow dies childless, the next brother in line will marry her. Even if he is previously married, he will marry her and give her a descendant. And so Judah gave the second son. She married the second brother and he died. She married the third brother and he died. And Judah only had one son left and he didn't want her to kill him off. And so he broke the law. He refused Tamar, his son. And here's where it gets pretty sketchy. This is in the Bible. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. And Judah invites her into his tent, not knowing that she's his daughter-in-law. And she conceives and bears twins, Perez and Zerah, who were in this list. Now, if I'm Matthew, I might just kind of sweep that under the rug. But Tamar is on the list. In fact, Judah himself would call her later righteous. And then what about Aunt Rahab? She's in the list. She was a prostitute. She was a harlot, according to Joshua 2. In fact, she was used by God to shelter Joshua's men who came to spy on Jericho. She assisted the Israelites. She defied her own king in Jericho in order to help the Hebrew people. She feared God and believed that Yahweh would take the city, which Yahweh did. And subsequently, Rahab was saved and eventually married Joshua and became a matriarch to eight prophets, one of whom was a young priest named Jeremiah. She's in the list. And then what about Aunt Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. What does that mean? The Moabites were a race of people, a nation of people who opposed the Israelite conquest of Canaan. And consequently, the Moabites were specifically and intentionally excluded from Israelite community. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 clearly states, no Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. And yet, Aunt Ruth made the list. You remember her story? After her husband's death, she followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem 
And Naomi arranged for Ruth to marry Boaz, one of her relatives, and they would bear a son named Obed, who would bear a son named Jesse, who would bear a son named David. If there's no Ruth, there's no David. If there's no David, there's no son of David. There's no Messiah. A Moabite on the list. And then there's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. You notice how Matthew says it. Matthew won't even call her by name. And by the way, if you don't know, she had a name. Her name was Bathsheba. David, you remember, took her as his own wife. And to cover up the affair, he conveniently moved her husband, Uriah, into the front lines of the battle where he is conveniently killed. But with the help of Pastor Nathan, David repents. He's cut to the heart. And he and Bathsheba would bear a son, and you remember his name, Solomon. And that boy would build a house for God. He would build the temple. Are you kidding me? (laughs) This is Jesus' family? Now, if I'm Matthew evangelizing the first century world, do you really think I ought to tell everything I know about the family? He does. So what's the point? What's Matthew saying? Well, I think he's saying that God does not only choose and call stainless sheep. God in God's infinite wisdom and providence even uses the black sheep of the family to bring about the salvation of the world. God uses clay feet. God uses Gentiles like us in the unfolding plot of redemption. So what that means is that this book, this gospel, is not primarily about ethnic purity. It's not primarily about moral perfection. It's about covenant faithfulness. And our family includes all kinds, even the most unlikely of characters to fulfill his purpose. Now, before we go, there's one other name. There's a fifth name in the lineage, and it belongs to a teenager from Nazareth. Matthew alters the language of genealogy, of lineage at this point in regard to Mary. Listen, listen to the way Matthew says it. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now notice, Matthew never says that Joseph is the father of Jesus. He simply says he's the husband of Mary who birthed Jesus. In other words, implication is something extraordinary is about to happen. Mary's child is not the biological son of Joseph. Mary's boy is the only begotten son 
of the Father. And so all these begats point to the begotten one, and we are his descendants. Now, this is a strange thing. There are actually, if you do the math in the list, there are only 41 names, but 42 generations. What does that mean? I think it means that you are on the list. It means that we are number 42. It means that God wants you to share his lineage. And if God can raise up sons and daughters of Abraham from a bunch of rocks, what do you suppose he can do with you, with me? You're in the family tree. (laughs) Last word. I have a dear friend who's a pastor of a church in Hartwell, Georgia. You know Hartwell, Georgia, situated on a lake. It's on the east side of Georgia near the South Carolina line. My friend Alan is originally from Warrington, Georgia, which is on the west side between Atlanta and Augusta. He gave me permission to share his story. His great-grandfather was the town doctor in Warrington. He was a loved man, a loving man, a reputable, respectable man who was a part of the church there, and he cared for the whole community. Dr. Stewart had a 17-year-old granddaughter who became pregnant by the son of a sharecropper who could not read or write. It was a scandal. They quietly married, but the marriage didn't last. But it produced a boy, a son, and the family wouldn't take him to the church to be baptized. They were too embarrassed. They were too ashamed. And that boy would grow up to become a Methodist preacher, my friend, Alan Stewart. He told me that even into his early 20s, he was ashamed of his roots. And he said, Davis, I grew up thinking that I was a mistake. Alan never met his father until his grandmother died. Alan was 35 when he first shook his father's hand. He said, I went into his office and I was shocked to find pictures of me covering the walls. And my father shook my hand and told him how often he would come to school plays and basketball games and stand behind the curtain and watch me play. And then Alan said, I spent maybe just 15 minutes with him. Not very long, but it was long enough to change my life. He said something that changed my life. He said, son, I want you to know that your mother and I got pregnant when we were young, not by mistake, but on purpose. We knew that our families would try to break it up and we were young and in love and though we came from different sides of the tracks, we thought maybe if we had a child, they would accept us, but they didn't. And our life together became unbearable. We divorced before you were born And I've made a lot of mistakes, but I want you to know that you are not one of them. You are not one of them. You were on purpose. 
you were never a mistake. It was a game changer for my friend. I can see him this morning. He's in Hartwell, Georgia. He's standing at a pulpit and he's saying to the people, God doesn't make mistakes, only descendants. And I'm one of them. And so are you. You're number 42. (laughs) You're on the list. You're a part of the lineage. It's in our DNA. And when you know from whence you come and from whom, you can begin to live a life of purpose on purpose. And you can start today on the first Sunday of Advent with a candle of hope. May it be so to the glory of God in Jesus' name.